welcome to Campion Conversations. This is an informal podcast discussion of pop culture and liberal arts conducted here at Campion College. My name is Dr. Dre. In 1599, at what would come to be known as the transformative middle period of his career, just as he was shifting away from the comedies and English histories of his youth, and still to produce the great tragedies that would immortalise his name, William Shakespeare adapted a familiar revenge play named Hamlet for his own stage. The story, a Danish tale concerning a young prince tasked with murdering his traitorous uncle, the new king, was thoroughly reinterpreted by Shakespeare, presenting the titular hero not as a cunning avenger righteously pursuing his prey, but as a melancholy, introspective academic, haunted by the potential consequences of his actions. Perhaps the one enduring observation that can be made of Hamlet is that he is ultimately unknowable. To discuss the character of Hamlet the complexity of his play, and apparently to help add to this unanswerable quest to know the unknowable, I am joined today by Dr. Jeremy Bell. Thank you for joining me. My pleasure. Now, one of the reasons that I, I, I thought it would be so profitable to, to talk to you about the play is not only because you're very familiar with the play, but you've actually played the character of Hamlet in a performance. That's right. I'm, I'm hoping, uh, if you don't mind, to dig into that as well as discussing uh, the, the play itself to kind of get into how you approach that performance, how you unpacked the character, found a way into what is, uh, I think, widely considered the most complex and difficult character to portray. Indeed. I suppose I should say a little bit about the way we did the production. I was one of two actors who were doing Hamlet, and we alternated. And I think that the reason the director wanted there to be two Hamlets was because he felt that each of us would bring something quite different to the performance, to the role. I might add, it made our lives in one respect quite a lot more difficult because, in Mm. effect, we had half the rehearsal time that everyone else had. (laughs) But um, it was an interesting experiment. And certainly, I know that the girl who was playing Gertrude found it um, fascinating playing her scenes with the two of us because we did it so differently. In the nature of the case, by the way, I barely saw the other actor doing his scenes much of the time. So you weren't influenced by his performance? Uh, Not consciously. Um, But um, in any case, so that was part of the setup. And also, since we weren't going to be playing Hamlet in each performance, he had, I hope I'm remembering this right, it was two years ago now, he had each of us also play Fortinbras. Certainly I played Fortinbras. In fact, I think, no, maybe originally the plan was we would each play Fortinbras, and in the end, for whatever reason, the other fellow didn't also. But I I certainly did. I played Fortinbras the nights that he was playing Hamlet. Wow. I don't recall the director ever explaining this decision in any detail. To split the the performance of the role in this way? Oh, no, not not to split the performance of the role, but to to have the same actor um, playing Hamlet and then playing Fortinbras. Right. Um, I think it was actually... I could be wrong, but I think it was a deliberate choice. I think that um, he sa- he saw a connection between the two characters in a way that, um, even though the audience doesn't see this on any given night, of course, it's still um, there's a certain fittingness he thought in having the same actor play both roles. It's kind of famously there are performances of Richard the Second in which the actors will swap from the roles of, of Bolingbroke to Richard the Second because there is presumably that overlap in their, if not necessarily characteristics, but their pursuit of the crown, their uh, the ways in which they're sort of tied through fate and longing mm. together. But you didn't get any sense of that? Well, again, it wasn't talked about. Again, it's it, it was only two years ago, but I'm, 
I, I'm, I may be reconstructing this incorrectly in my memory, but um, but certainly, yeah, the fact that there is some sort of connection between Fortinbras and Hamlet is is a commonplace observation. I mean, people talk about Fortinbras as one of the foils for mm. Hamlet, and yeah, I mean, maybe that's a good place to start. They're both princes. They both have a father with the same name as them, which is certainly important. Mm-hmm. And old Hamlet is said to have defeated, well, not just defeated, slain old Fortinbras. And then right at the beginning of the play, I mean, I shouldn't say right at the beginning, but the first time we ever meet Claudius, he talks about the state of the Danish kingdom and he mentions Fortinbras. And it's obvious from the outset that, yes, Denmark and um, Norway are at loggerheads. And so, yes, Hamlet's death at the end and Fortinbras is marching in and claiming his inheritance is is certainly very important. And on that point, too, the fact that some productions leave Fortinbras out altogether, I think, is probably a mistake. Yeah. Um, it's understandable that you want to cut the play. I don't know if... It would be interesting to, to know if anyone in history, apart from Kenneth Branagh, has actually done the entire play all the way through. We certainly didn't. But uh, whatever else you're going to cut, I think you mustn't cut Fortinbras. Mm. Well, there is that sense in which... I mean, Hamlet is a, a play that fundamentally you have the the revenge plot that is meant to be driving the action, but it's there are also like counter revenge plots. There's Laertes coming to of course, to yes. Well, he's father. the other obvious foil, exactly. Right. But mm. but it, uh, I think Fortinbras is, as you observed, another layer of that revenge uh, story on top of it as well. He's coming to revenge the death of his father in a sense. I mean, mm. he's not uh, intending specifically to murder Hamlet because of that, but there is that sense in which this kind of continuation of death and and vengeance plays out over the course of the play. And I do think, you're right, you lose something uh, in that if you just take it out. <clears throat> yes, I think absolutely you do. And in particular, in the case of Fortinbras, you lose some of the political dimension of the play. Yes. I mean, this is something that I had a certain amount of trouble with myself. The director asked me early on for some of my general thoughts about the character and what I saw the plays being about, and... My immediate reaction was, well, I see it primarily as a family drama. I think this surprised him, and I know from something he said later on that he certainly didn't want the play to be presented as simply a family drama. And, again, the fact that I was inclined to see it that way partly, I think, is just due to my own background. Um, I mean, without going into details about that, I mean, you know, with, with divorced parents and... Um, there was a certain amount of identification, I suppose, on my part, with Hamlet, the aggrieved son. Mm. Certainly Hamlet starts out in the figure of the, yes, the sad morning sun. Yes, I'm too much in the sun. <laughs> um, resentful of, of this interloper, Claudius, who's married his mother at such short notice and furious at his mother. And again, wherever else you go with the play and, and with the character, I think, there's a sense in which you have to start there because that's where Hamlet starts. Now, of course, by the end, um, there's a lot more going on. And, yes, the the fact that you end up with Fortinbras, this apparently minor character, I think does certainly show that the political dimension of the play is essential, which is Mm. why you really shouldn't cut Fortinbras out. But then again, what what are we to make of it? I mean, I'm glad that you started out the way you did, saying this unknowable character. Um, Perhaps I should actually say I didn't, precisely see it as my job to interpret Hamlet, mm. um, odd as that might sound. I mean, I, I might say I actually have a, a problem quite generally with the the whole idea that it's the job of a director or an actor to interpret a role at all. I mean, people say this all the time, but I tend to think, well, 
Okay, simply at the level of delivering individual lines, sure, sometimes the scope for genuine disagreement about how exactly a certain line should be delivered, um, even sometimes about how a certain scene should be played, mm. sometimes. Um, I mean, one example that comes to mind, which is not from Hamlet, but the famous speech, um, well, the most famous speech of um, Shylock, uh, where he talks about being a Jew, hath not a Jew, eyes, organs, dimensions, and so forth. The first production of that that I ever saw, a BBC production from, I think, the 80s, the actor playing Shylock actually in a way makes it a somewhat comic moment. He's, mm. he's laughing uh, and, and laughing together with the characters he's addressing while he's saying that. And then it's only when he gets to the line, and if you're wrong, I shall be not revenge, that the laughter stops. Mm. And it was an interesting choice. I mean, that, that is certainly an interpretative choice in one obvious sense. Um, you're kind of putting it in the, the history of uh, interpretation of the play sort of as a comedy that has perhaps retroactively been seen with a more tragic dimension? Is that what you... Oh, I, I didn't mean anything. I mean, you, perhaps that too. I, but I didn't mean anything as... Um, all, all I meant uh, in saying that was, well, OK, this is a particular line or a particular series of lines that are usually delivered in a certain way. They're, they're mm. delivered as dramatic and passionate and serious, and here they were delivered as comic and the seriousness came later. So at that level, of course, there's interpretation to be done. But when it comes to yeah, the bigger picture, I've always tended to feel, well... Okay, Shakespeare knew what he was doing. To the extent that there's enigma in it, to the extent that it's unclear what's going on and what we should make of it, I actually think, in a way, it's the job of a good performance to preserve that. Yes. Um, you simply show what Shakespeare gives, and everything mysterious, um, capable of different readings, is, in a way, kept there. Once again, here, I, I know this is not a very common not a very common approach and, and it certainly wasn't um, the director's approach either he I know as I've said had a very definite series of ideas about the play and actually I think to most of the cast some somewhat obscure ideas um, and yeah this is a good moment as any to talk about it we um, Hamlet has a line during the the scene where the players are doing their you know the murder of Gonzago um, he's watching of course his mother and uh, and Claudius the whole time and at one point he says, Wormwood, Wormwood. And the way that I'd always read that line, I suppose the way most people read it, is that his mother and or Claudius are finding it bitter watching this depiction of what they recognise, or at least what Claudius recognises as being yes, what's actually happened historically. Mm. Um, and so it's it bitter in that sense, it's Wormwood to them. But the director of this production I was in actually believed that the biblical significance of Wormwood, Wormwood is the star in the book of Revelation that falls and poisons a third of the, world, the world's rivers or something like that, that that was very much intended there. And he actually had me deliver that line in a way that made me feel rather silly. Uh, me and the other fellow who did the character... Taking out the Bible and pointing out no, the Wormwood! No, it wasn't. Well, actually, I almost wish it had been that. No, what we, no, what we had to do was, instead of murmuring wormwood wormwood which was the way it came to me naturally mm. we had to stand up march to the front of the stage and shout out of the audience wormwood wormwood oh, dear. and yes as i say it made me feel like a fool every time i did it and also i'm sure the audience had no idea what the point of it was meant to be but to tie it back to the rest of the production, you almost should have announced google the word <laughs> and back to your well role. but the point about the rest of the production we we had a, a very um interesting set. The set was basically a series of pieces of wood which kept being rearranged after every major scene. 
And at the very end of the play, in, in the fight scene, they were arranged in the form of a star mm. on the stage. And so it finally became clear what the point, as it were, of these, again, bizarre-looking pieces of moon cheese, as they were called by a few people, actually were. And, of course, there you go, Wormwood, the star, some connection with the Book of Revelation. Wow. Now, yes, very interesting, but um, it certainly didn't help me in any particular way no. when it came to delivering particular lines or staging particular scenes. Well, yeah, I mean, I think, I think something that in the act of performance needs footnotes is probably not going to be the most engaging way for, for the audience to participate in that enactment, but which is why I'm curious about, because I actually agree with you, I think, I think most important is that, that moment in which the, the characters are interacting with one another. That's one of the most brilliant things that, that Shakespeare was able to evoke in, in scenes is characters... Uh, of, of sort of disparate emotional and, and philosophical states kind of colliding against each other. And that's certainly true uh, of Hamlet, which is why uh, when you mentioned in the beginning the, the two performers uh, playing that role, I imagine that would have been a nightmare, not only for you, but for the other performers, because the, the dynamism of those relationships changes profoundly, given... Indeed. Um... I mean, again, you can, you can make a, the play... Uh, giving Ophelia a kind of primacy of importance in uh, Hamlet's journey, or you can give it, as it sounds like you may have done, uh, to Gertrude, to, to the mother, that, that that's his sort of primary motivating... I didn't precisely make a decision about it for myself, and I, I don't think the director wanted me to. Um, Is it more instinctive than that, though? Rather than making a, a kind of academic decision, I believe that Hamlet is concerned with this. I would imagine oh, sure. in the performance no, it was, Exactly, it is. That, that's know. right. And, I mean, although having said that, I also think if you simply reading the play, to me, overwhelmingly, the scene with Gertrude is, um, is a game-changer in the way that the scenes with Ophelia are not. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I still tend to think of the scene with Gertrude as being, I don't want to say the most important scene, that would be an exaggeration, but certainly um, a central mm. scene in, in making any sort of sense of the play, partly actually for a, just for a very human reason. It's, I feel that it's really the first time in the play, I'll qualify that in a moment, but <laughs> I'm inclined to say the first time in the play when Hamlet really puts aside all irony and game playing and masks yes. and just let's rip yeah. um, and he's given the most marvellous lines that, I mean I, I have to say you know, do, doing a role like Hamlet is stressful but if nothing else um, being able to deliver these beautiful wonderful lines is just such a fantastic experience That's, that scene actually has one of my favourite passages the um, look here upon this picture and on this yes. account of it presentment of two mm. brothers because uh, to me and I don't think we'll have time to get into this but to me that's uh, my angle on, on Hamlet is I, I think that he's He's a character constantly obsessed with image and the interpretation of image is why you mm. have you know the, the play within a play is the kind of central uh, plot driving device for him the, the way that the characters are reacting to this being enacted the the picture you know how can you mother look on this picture of your husband and then this new guy who's replaced him the uh, even down to little things with like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern looking at the cloud. Mm. And, and the whole, you know, very like a whale. Interpretation and responses to aesthetic images uh, seem to obsess him. He's constantly obsessed with the way that people are reacting to, to stimuli and the way that he believes they should be or how they're incorrectly responding to uh, stimuli. Um, oh, no, no, sure. I mean, th that's not a particular perspective from which I've 
thought about it um, mm. before, but I think you're quite right no, of course to say right. that. I mean, the, <laughs> the kind of a presentment point is difficult to do on stage because you actually have to get the thing out and sort of do this juggling mm. business. I remember finding that quite difficult. Not nearly as difficult as dealing with the sword, but that's so another the, story. The, uh, the gesture that you made there, it looked like you were pulling out a wallet photograph or something. What, what, was, what did <laughs> um, you actually show? I'm trying to remember how we did it exactly. Um, so so I'm, I'm assuming it's not like a gigantic no, painting. No, it wasn't. Oh, no, 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 no. Right. They, they, they were little uh, pictures. I, do you know, I actually can't remember precisely how we did I just remember it being an important and, and somewhat difficult um, technical thing. But anyway, I, I did say earlier I was going to qualify what I said about the scene. Um, the only earlier places where he, in a way, seems to open up are, of course, the scenes with Horatio. Mm. Very important. And Horatio, too, yes, this this other kind of foil to Hamlet, such a... Well, in a way, such an interesting character, because unlike Hamlet, he seems so completely straightforward. yeah. And you wonder if that's got something to do with why Hamlet's attracted to him. But um, well, everyone in the play—they're all such sort of grand characters, and around this one character of Horatio, who is delightfully normal. Like exactly, exactly. Yes. As you said he's, he's the most kind of straightforward, identifiable. Uh, I think audience surrogate for all of these kind of <laughs> yes. figures who, uh, you know, murderers and and uh, liars and you know, political maneuverers and the insane. Uh, everyone else around him is so extreme and he's just that you know, normality that, that can kind of put in context in the end all of the chaos that has occurred. Yeah. Well, and the fact that he is a convincing character is very important. Mm. I mean, the um, particularly when you read Hamlet as opposed to watching it, it's, it can be a very depressing play, I think, because you can feel by the end of it a certain lack of centre you think, look, what what is is going on here? What um, what am I supposed to hold on to here to make sense of it? Mm. I mean, what, part of the genius of Shakespeare, I think, is that again, you feel that while at the same time thinking that everything is there is in there for a reason. That Shakespeare again knew exactly what he was doing, yeah. but just what the hell was he doing? But again, what what distinguishes it in a way from certain more contemporary works that, um, in in a way, make a point of being as wacky and as off the wall and disorienting as possible is that yes you have this character of Horatio who is convincingly normal upright good and all all the rest Mm. of it so it would seem and again I say so it would seem only because one is never quite sure in a play like Hamlet but but I, I don't have any particular reason to doubt that I mean if there's any reason to wonder about Horatio it's um it's about his own reactions to Hamlet, especially right at the end when Hamlet tells him about what he did to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, which is yes. a horrific yes. moment in the play. Yeah. Yes, and, and his, his brief response, um, so Rosencrantz and Guildenstern go to it. And I think, I mean, this is one of those possibly relatively rare places in the, um, in the play when um, Hamlet's reaction gives you a sense of how Horatio should deliver that line, because this is where Hamlet starts getting defensive and saying, look, look, they're not on my conscience, they come not near my conscience, they they were part of this plot against me, mm. therefore I was apparently well within my rights to send them to likely damnation. I mean, it's a, it's yeah. a horrifying idea. Of course, it, that idea has come up once before in the play, with um, his reluctance to kill Claudius while he's um, praying, and therefore it's possibly in a state of grace. But yes, with Claudius, of course, okay, it's his job in a sense to kill him, and um, we do know that Claudius has behaved very badly, but of course, with the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, not by any means obvious. Mm. Um, difficult to say, but yeah, not obvious that they're, and, and certainly whatever they've done, they're not nearly as in 
as you know, in, steeped in blood so far as Claudius yeah. is. And so, and nonetheless, these erstwhile friends of Hamlet get yes executed, and also no shriving time allowed. Yes, I mean th- again, one of the many things that to say it's unsettling is an understatement. It just makes you think, what what are you supposed to do with this? And I mean, you know, we, we were doing this production for Artis Christi, which is a Catholic um, uh, theatre company, you know, amateur Catholic theatre company, and. The, the person whose idea it was to put the play on at all, who wasn't the director, um, actually wrote a piece for the Catholic Weekly in which he was pushing the case for Shakespeare having been Catholic. And, of course, part of the evidence for that is the fact that the doctrine of purgatory is quite explicitly... Um, I mean, it's essential to the plot of Hamlet. <laughs> and, and the even, idea of the ghost, perhaps. Exactly. Old, old Hamlet, yeah. yes, um, comes from purgatory. And also, old Hamlet says that he died unhouseled, unannealed... Um, in other words, he died without having received the Eucharist and without having gone to confession, received you know, mm. the final sacraments, all, all of which, or much of which, were thrown overboard by um, the Protestant Reformation. So, in any case, yeah, precisely from a, a Catholic or even just more generally a Christian point of view, what are you to make of Hamlet, even psychologically? I mean, if he's a serious believer, what concern does he have for his own soul that he would do this sort of thing? Mm. Um, if he's not a serious believer, why does he get such apparent pleasure in the thought of having done it? Um, yes, that. I mean, to me, that is one of the impenetrable things about Hamlet. Not the only one, but certainly one of them. Uh, we were talking about Gertrude and uh, the the moment in the closet where mm. uh, he he is finally, and I think you're absolutely right. One one of the first few moments where he can kind of drop the pretense and actually try to be honest and and try mm. to because he doesn't realise they're being overheard. Uh, he he can actually try to communicate something real to her. Uh, I, I get a real sense that while he's trying to appeal to. Uh, Gertrude, we get this window into their relationship through this moment of quietitude and honesty, frankly. Mm. With Ophelia, things are far more layered. She's constantly in a state of being scrutinised, watched, literally spied upon at at times, and Hamlet uh, is aware of that. He puts on all of this ghastly, uh, almost misogynistic sort of uh, attacks Mm. uh, upon her uh, in, in this sort of public space. Was that difficult to communicate, the, the sort of layers going on within that interaction? The, those scenes were very difficult. What, one choice the director made, actually, was... Um, and I, I forget, something about the staging was supposed to make this clear. Um, the way that he wanted us to do that scene was that Hamlet was supposed to cotton on to the fact that uh, Polonius and Claudius were actually watching and that, and that Ophelia knew that. And, of course, that's not made completely clear. You, you could do it either way. It's not made completely clear in the scene. So that Ophelia knew that or, or that Hamlet knew that? No, that Hamlet knew that. Right, sorry. Yes. And Which I like. I hope that that's true. In performances, sure, yes, I hope yes. that. Because otherwise mm. he's just ghoulish. Too. Uh, even even if they're in a public space, what he's accusing her of. Any, anyway, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, 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 no sure. That's, but, so that, that was a choice that was made. And, and as you say, that certainly... It, it makes the scene in one sense easier, I suppose. Mm. Um, it, it gives him a, a motivation, as they say, that, that otherwise would be lacking. I mean, I'm tempted to say there's also a certain danger if you do it that way of trivialising it. I mean, it may, because if right. you don't do it that way, then you, of course, have to wonder, well, okay, what, simply from the point of view of their relationship, is this, yes, rant all about? Mm. Obviously, it's in part about the fact that she has... Um, 
given back his tokens of love and, and has apparently cut things off with him. And, and of course, this comes right on the heels of the perceived betrayal by his mother, mm-hmm. um, both of him and, more importantly, in a way, of his father. Yeah, again, that's the obvious thing, very important to state the obvious, that okay, the two most important women in his life have both, from his point of view, betrayed him um, in quick succession. Mm. And this is even without the additional level of betrayal that's there if he suspects that she's working as a spy for mm. um, Claudius, which, as I say, in our production was there too. Which you, you suggested is, is maybe an easy out. Like, well, to put that I, I, I think I think there's a risk it it can become so. I mean, um, but if everything is performance and pretense, and that he's sort of winking at the audience that I know they're there, and so this is a even though he, he's castigating her in such a horrendous way, there's a sense of it him not meaning it in that way. Is that what you? Well, the, I suppose that's part of what I mean. I mean, yeah. On the other hand, indeed, there is the fact that well, this is him also castigating her for an additional reason. Mm. Look, you've not only given back the tokens of my love, but you've joined the enemy and, and aspiring on me. So it, it sort of, yeah, it does cut both ways. Um, yeah, a very, a very difficult scene to do just generally. I think one really important point in it is the, um, that brief line he has before she comes on, nymph in thy orisons be all my sins remembered. A moment of real and I think very sincere tenderness and also mm. almost, as it were, an apology on his part. Look, forgive me for what I'm about to do to you. Yeah. I think it could almost be. Um, that's a beautiful moment. Although, again, curious given everything else that happens in the play. But okay, it's there, and, and you have to make as much of it as possible. That's hard too, of course, because it comes right after the whole "to be or not to be" speech. Mm. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> anyway, I dare say we'll talk about that in a moment too. But. That scene. I'm just trying to remember. The main thing I remember straight away is how difficult it was doing it. I mean... This is the Ophelia scene. Yes, the Ophelia yeah. scene, trying to... Well, yes, uh, uh, trying to make the um, the anger and the um, and the insult real, while at the same time preserving some sense that, yes, underneath it all, he really does love her. Because if that isn't there, I think it doesn't make any sense at all, really. Mm. I, look, to be honest, it felt, again, strange doing it. Um, I don't know what it actually looked like, how it came across to the audience. I, I hope it worked after some fashion. Well, but, yes, so, yeah. um, but yes, a, a, a difficult scene to do. The closet scene, in, in a sense, I think is much more straightforward, mm. which makes it easier. But yeah. Is there... Is, uh, sorry, I'm, I know I'm no, lingering no. on this, but I, I, do, I really find the, the character of Ophelia fascinating. You mentioned that uh, immediately preceding that is the... Uh, is the um, basically Hamlet's meditating upon suicide. Like, mm. you know... Should I kill myself, essentially? Uh, or, or what would it be to die? What I always find uh, interesting in the, the way that the, the play is laid out is that he has this moment of, of contemplating suicide and yet it's Ophelia with whom he next immediately speaks who is going to go on and mm. make that manifest. She's the one who commits suicide. He's the one who yes. you know, mm. uh, dies in, in pursuit of his revenge and in the same sense actually it occurs to me that for all of his feigning madness she's the one who goes mad as well there's almost a sense in which emotionally she manifests all of the things that he is pretending his his pretense is kind of no i think that's right but to be or not to be this is 
iconic. This is like the, the moment where you're holding the skull of, of Yorick, but it's one of those uh, quintessential iconic moments that stands outside of the play. Even people who have never seen the play, uh, who are just vaguely aware of the name, they know the guy standing beside the grave with the skull, and they know to be or not to be. Yes. How do you even approach them uh, as a performer? I think in a way there's no particular... There's no particular way you approach them. You're given the lines, you have to deliver them. My my difficulty, actually, with, with both of those speeches was in... Or rather, I, I don't mean my only difficulty, but the big difficulty that I remember was, um, in a sense, an external one. Because the play is so long, even when you cut it. And also, incidentally, in this production, because um, the moving of the, the set actually took up so much time, um, it became necessary, just for reasons of time, to move the play as a whole quite quickly. And especially in the To Be or Not To Be speech, and to some extent also in this first speech, um, I wanted to go more slowly mm. than, um, than the director wanted me to. And again, I, I don't mean that he wanted me to go fast simply for those reasons I mentioned. I don't, I don't think that was the case at all. But it was an additional reason which I was also conscious of. I actually think, again, this is partly related to what I was saying earlier about interpretation. People sometimes say that, look, you know, Shakespeare didn't intend his plays to be read, he intended them to be performed. And I think, well, I'm not so sure about that. I mean, of course he intended them to be performed, but look at them. Are you seriously telling me that he did not intend these plays to be read? They are so dense. Mm. And again, even if you were a native speaker of Elizabethan English, there is just no way that you would have got everything there was to get in one performance, two performances, ten performances, um, they are made to be read as much as, if not more than, performed. And the reason I mention that is because I think, you know, there's an older school, well, by now very much older school, of Shakespeare performance, which in in, in a way it treats the big speeches like this simply as poetry to be delivered. Mm. And I have to confess, I have a lot of sympathy with that. Really? Um, Not simply because (laughs) it's such beautiful writing, but actually because, yeah, the focus is on the writing and the words and it's just a lot easier to think about them and to think about what's going on in them if, in a sense, there's not too much acting. Okay. <laughs> I mean, no, no, I, I know this is, a very, this is a very unfashionable thing to say. Yes, <laughs> See, the, the John Gill good school. Is exactly somebody, so. what I'm imagining in my mm. head is to be or not to be. But that's not exactly what you're no. talking about. Well, no, 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 actually, that's the opposite of what I'm talking about. Okay. That's... That, that's Overacting. I mean, the thing. I mean, we we, we should really talk about his performances of Hamlet. Um, I might say straight away, I I wouldn't say that I was happy with my performance as Hamlet. Um, I don't. I, I wonder whether anyone has ever really been happy with their performance. Um, the film of Hamlet that I actually like the most um, is the Russian film from 1964, which I've not seen actually. Oh, yeah, I, I do recommend it. Um, yeah. I mean, one interesting thing about that is that. Of course, it's done in Russian. In fact, I believe it's done in old Russian. It's not even done in contemporary Russian. But, of course, you have the subtitles underneath, which are simply Shakespeare's lines. And, oh, right. and of course, for an English speaker, the effect of this is, in a sense, you get the best of both. You, yeah. you get what is really, I think, a very good performance, but you get the beautiful language underneath. And because it's written there, you don't have to listen and strain your voice or anything. You can see it and think about it, and you, you relax wow. with it. Actually, well, I really mean, like the idea of that. One, one problem I have with so many contemporary Shakespeare performances is that because of the desire to be realistic and to act as opposed to treating it as poetry, yeah. actors don't do the elementary thing of making the dialogue actually intelligible. You know, I mean, for better or worse, you cannot rush these lines mm. if people are to hear them and understand them. Um, and also, they are poetry. I mean, that's 
you know, iambic pentameter. There's nothing you can do about that. And up to a point, they do have to be delivered as poetry if they're even to make sense. And yes, if you try to deliver Shakespeare's language as if it were Tennessee Williams or something, it will look and sound weird. And the audience won't make sense of it. That's my general feeling. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when you look at the old... I mean, Laurence Olivier, in his time, was actually criticised for, for being too verismo, for, for getting away from the John Gill for delivering the poetry. And, you know, we, we watch him now and we think, oh, but it's so stilted, it's so mannered. I mean, we, we mm. see him as sort of classic representative of, of the older school, but he wasn't seen that way in his time. And he didn't think of himself that way either. He thought of himself as introducing his realism and acting into it. Um, and look, whatever one thinks of his performance, the the the, uh, the closet scene, I do like the way he does that scene. Is it Laurence Olivier? Yes, I like the way he does that scene. And again, yeah. one, one illustration of what I like about it, when the ghost comes in and, and says to him, amongst other things, um, speak to her, Hamlet, and then his very next line is, how is it with you, mother? He delivers that softly, gently, you know, mm. how is it with you, mother? And... I think the temptation always with, with Hamlet, I mean, more than with any other Shakespeare role, is to overdo it. Yes. And, in fact, this is basically my complaint about almost every Hamlet I've ever seen, both on stage and on screen, that if I feel tired the moment that Hamlet starts speaking yep. or shouting, as the case very often is. Yeah. Um, no, I, I totally agree. My uh, one, of, one of the productions that I have the biggest problem with is actually the, you mentioned it before, the Kenneth Branagh, mm. the... the four and a half hour production of it and there is so much about that mm. performance uh, that that production i should say that i love it's sumptuous like visually there, there are so many uh, it's kate winslet is ophelia yeah. in that mm. sorry to be obsessed about ophelia but kate winslet <laughs> okay. uh, even uh billy crystal you know one of the few yes. times that i can stand billy crystal turning up in a performance <laughs> uh, and they're all great but brunner's hamlet i can't handle it he's just chewing the scenes i, I can't I can't deal with his performance in, in any sense. I've only seen bits of it, um, and so I, I, I can't really comment. But it's um, just, well, He does all of those things. I mean, he doesn't do, to be or not to be, but you get that sense of every time he's performing uh, one of these soliloquies or, you know, the, alas, poor Yorick, it's, you, you get the sense that he, he's got the whole weight of history uh, mm. behind him and he's attempting to squeeze it all into the moment and that's exactly the the wrong impulse with Hamlet I think it, it's you know you, it is meant to be a, a guy perhaps lost in his own introspection and his sense of self and trying to grapple with his place in the universe and this obligation and frankly the play itself mm. uh, and if if you bring all of this baggage from the outside world into that sort of uh, sense of uh, self-examination it just became it becomes too unwieldy uh, and too performative and uh, again I don't I, I agree with what you were saying I don't think you go too far in the other direction and mumble your way through the performance and uh, you know lose yourself in a, a kind of um, attempt to create complete verisimilitude but Somewhere in the middle, you know, yeah. embracing that poetry, but also appreciating that it is a, a character on a, their own emotional journey and arc is kind of what you want to aim for. Mm. You know? One of the obvious and important differences between the first speech, you know, the two two sullied flesh, and the second one, the to be or not to be, is is just how impersonal the second one is as compared with mm. the first. Because the first one, I mean, the word this, that this two two sullied flesh would melt Thor and resolve itself into a dew. Mm as opposed to the 
abstract reflection, to be or not to be, that is the question. He never once refers to himself or to his own predicament um, in that speech. Mm. And I almost want to say that says it all about that speech. And I think the yeah, there does need to be a certain plainness, a certain discomforting, abstract quality about the delivery of that speech. And, and again, tying it back to what I was saying earlier, from that point of view, delivering it as poetry or almost as poetry, I think even works in a way, because it does highlight the fact that although, of course, it's with reference to his own situation, nonetheless, he doesn't even seem to be thinking about himself in particular. And You're the, absolutely right. There is mm-hmm. that strange sense of abstraction in the, in the way that yes. he thinks it is. And the other, I mean, the other obvious difference between the two, to me, is... Um, I mean, I mean, at one level, there are lots of differences, but, but looking at the big picture, the other obvious difference is that in the first speech he says, yes, if only the Almighty had not set his cannon against self-slaughter. There's no mention of God. There's no obvious fear of punishment. I mean, there's no obvious fear of punishment in the second speech. There's this, again, somewhat abstract, speculative, mm. yes, who knows what follows this life, which is odd, of course, and disturbing. And, and it's all the more odd, in a way, given that... Hamlet has just had a visitation from you know, someone who has actually died. And and once again, it, it, it's the kind of thing that, yes, you can mull over it for ages and ages. What What is going on in this man's head? But I, I don't know whether there's actually... I, I don't know whether your reflections on that can necessarily do a great deal as far as informing your performance. Your, your job as a performer is to deliver the lines as, as you know, the text itself pushes you to. And of course, again, they're great lines. It's a pleasure to be able to to, to give this wonderful, famous speech. <laughs> I mean, that that might be a, a place to actually end. Is to ask: Is there a moment that, in your performance, you, you particularly looked forward to to getting to that moment? Was there is there a, a a line, a soliloquy, an interaction with the characters? There's something that you you felt, uh, even if it didn't uh, quintessentially summarise your understanding of the character, uh, just something that you enjoyed playing mm. at the moment? Well, I, I've already mentioned it in a way. The the closet scene, I enjoyed doing very much. It was hard work, but, but enjoyable. I actually, I, I always looked forward to saying the line, a murderer and a villain. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, I think that's actually one of the moments where you really do need to... Yeah, I mean, it, it is highly theatrical in every sense of the word, and unless you deliver it that way, it doesn't work. I've talked already about the overacting that I think you know can so easily ruin Hamlet, but in an odd way, the opposite can also happen. Mm. Because, of course, there are moments, I mean, in all Shakespeare, and especially in a role like Hamlet, where, yes, you really do feel as if you're standing at the top of a hill holding your hand up or something, mm. and they have to be done that way. Yeah. Otherwise, it falls flat and you just feel silly, and it looks silly. And and that line, a murderer and a villain. You know, I mean, I didn't deliver it quite like no, that. That's I promise. But, but, but something like that has to be there. I also like that idea of the, the mm. Ur text of Hamlet kind of reasserting itself. No, this is a revenge story. Yes, like kind of no, exactly. Coming back into mm. the midst of this family drama, which uh, yes. obviously the director was <laughs> a little reluctant to get into. Well, thank you so much um, My pleasure. For, for your insight. It's fantastic to, to talk to you about the play and we'll look forward to talking to you again. Yes, thank you. This episode of Campion Conversations was brought to you by the makers of the brand new game show, Wittgenstein's Beetle in a Box.
Join grumpy monastic language philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein each week as he bewilders contestants with that famous question, what's in the box? Is it a beetle? Is it nothing? Is it Gwyneth Paltrow's head? You, like our contestants, will never definitively know. Campion Conversations is a production of Campion College of the Liberal Arts, Australia.